Psalm 15. This is a short psalm, five verses. And it asks an important question Who has access to God? Have you ever wondered what it takes to meet a royal dignitary or somebody who is a state leader? Um, I was wondering what it took to try to meet the Queen of England, and my Google searches uh, did not give me anything other than try to show up at a garden party. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know how you even show up at a garden party. Uh, so I, I changed my searches and thought, I wonder what it takes to try to meet the President of the United States. Now, before your mind goes um, uh, chaotic in reactions against a political figure, let me just try to hold you back from that and just think about uh, just what it's trying to take to meet any of the presidents of the United States. Here's what I found. You need to become a winner of some sort of national sport franchise or be part of the U.S. Olympic team that does well. Then you might get invited. Uh, be a hero in such a way that captures national public attention so that you know your popularity is something that the White House would be interested in um, using for their own gain. Be a policy expert, possessing such expertise that... Uh, the President of the United States would seek your advice. Uh, be somebody who represents a foreign land, such as like an ambassador to another nation. Or you might try to meet a president by making a substantial financial donation or be someone who has the ability to raise substantial financial campaign finance. Or finally, you might just decide you're going to meet the President of the United States by being an influencing vote in a sparsely populated yet important region for the national primaries. I don't know what your strategy is going to be, but those are a variety of ways that you might arrange to meet the President of the United States. What about God? How are you going to arrange a meeting with Him? How are you going to arrange dwelling with Him, being in His presence, and serving and working with Him? Well, Psalm 15 exists in many ways to answer that question. This song can be organized into two basic sections. The first is just asking those questions. It's repeated there twice in that first verse. And then the next section, verses 2 down through verse 5, are the answers to that question. And then finally, there's a conclusion. There's just one phrase that summarizes the result of all this at the end of verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. So Psalm 15 explores who is granted permission to be in God's presence. Or in other words, what kind of person gets to be with God forever. Access to God's presence, though, we need to understand some basic foundational truth as we seek to understand Psalm 15. And so I want to just try to pause here for a minute and recover some biblical truth that I think will help us properly understand and appreciate this idea that Psalm 15 is expressing to us this morning. We need to begin by understanding that access to God's presence is not an inalienable human right. Um, this may seem obvious to some of us. It might seem kind of uh, almost shocking to some of us. But that access to God is not an inalienable human right. And what I mean by that is in, in an age where we have this idea of, of human rights and constitutional rights and equal rights, sometimes we can kind of think of God as just one of those rights that we as humans, as people, of course, we have access to God. I mean, who doesn't? That's God. It's the business he's in. He's in there to kind of be with us and comfort us and care for us and provide for us. And so, yeah, we all have access to God. But the fact that David asks this question in the beginning, he, O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? 
The fact that David is asking these questions assumes to the reader that that there's not that, that not everyone is granted access to God indiscriminately. In our age, where we uh, pride ourselves with kind of having equal rights, this can kind of be almost a kick in the teeth. And also, when we need to understand and appreciate that access to God is not casual or commonplace. Um, as, as Christians who live in this new covenant age of Jesus Christ, we might take for granted the access to God that we have been given through Christ. But we would do well to remember how exceptional it is that we have access to God through Jesus. And to help us appreciate that, I want to just do a brief survey of the history of God's redemptive plan through the ages. Now, if you're not a Christian, this may be boring to you, okay? Um, So I just want to warn you. um, It may be boring to you, but hang in there. Because I think if you hang in there, that it'll be eventually you'll be interested. And I hope you'll be interested to look into these things even more. For Christians... I think this will be useful and helpful for us to deepen our understanding of the riches that we have in Christ Jesus in the access that has been granted to us through him. So in the beginning, Adam and Eve, they were granted access to God. They had perfect fellowship with him in the garden. God made them perfectly and explicitly for that purpose, to enjoy him. Sadly, the fullness of that fellowship was devastated when they sinned and they chose their own way over and against God's way and they disobeyed God's command, they disbelieved his word to them and they sinned. God cast them out of the garden and a new reality took place on planet Earth and it was a reality where now humans are born by nature, wrath, uh, by, by nature they're, they're, they're enemies of God now. This uh, condition of inherited uh, sin. You can read about that in Romans 5. You can read about it in Ephesians 2. Now all people were plunged into this condition of depravity, of sin. As you continue to read through the Bible, you, you'll see God's plan with eventually with Abraham and then establishing Israel as a nation. And as you keep reading, you're going to learn that when Israel is now a nation and they're being uh, led out of bondage in Egypt, um, they're, they're headed out. They, they are at a mountain, Mount Sinai. And yet, they now, Israel, God has delivered them. He's shown his mighty powerful signs to them. And now, God is going to visit Israel. And I'm going to read a lengthy section from Exodus 19. I'm going to have it on the screen for you so you can follow along. The reason I'm reading this is because I want for us to try to uh, reconcile our instinct or appreciation of, of, of access to God with this experience that Israel had in having access to God or being near God's presence. In Exodus 19, the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the, pe- words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And here's what they're doing to get ready to have this encounter with God. Let them wash their garments, be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around the mountain, right? Saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So they're taking special, careful considerations in getting prepared to have this encounter with God. They're washing, they're consecrating themselves, they're setting themselves apart in, in, a, in a holy way, putting themselves away from the ordinary actions. 
And so Moses go down, goes down, he tells the people, tells them to get ready on the third day. And what happens is on the third day of the third, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Right? They're not even close to God yet. Now Moses is leading them out there and they're trembling already and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Imagine Mount Evans trembling. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Can you imagine being Moses? Moses went up. And Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. It's as if God has such great concern. I mean, Moses gets called up. They do all this preparation. It's trembling. People are trembling. The mountain's trembling. Moses comes up and God says, Go back and tell them to be careful not to come close. Because, why? Lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. If maybe this was the beginning of the, of the yellow caution tape, where they're putting this, this restriction around this mountain, don't come near. Why? Because God's coming close. This was the experience that God's people had in an encounter with God, being near his presence. And so I want to just try to reconcile our appreciation and understanding of access to God with Israel's experience of that in this, in this moment. But eventually, all right, as you continue to read in your Bibles, you're going to read about a tabernacle being built and God giving blueprints to Moses and then the, the people of Israel going through elaborate, uh, detailed construction of establishing the tabernacle, which was a tent, which, by the way, Psalm 15 is, a, is an allusion to that because in the verse 1 you see it, it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in what? Your tent. That was an allusion to the Old Testament tabernacle where God's presence was. But the tabernacle was constructed, but it included interior rooms that restricted access to God's presence. And access to the tabernacle was restricted. Not, not, no, no Israelite just kind of waltzed into the tabernacle and kind of on open visiting hours. In fact, when Moses went to the tabernacle to be in God's presence, it was notable, it was almost sensational in a way. In Exodus 33, verse 8, it says this, Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. I don't know what the, what the, and it would be analogous for us in our, in our age, but have you ever gone to see the changing of the guard uh, in, in Washington, D.C.? You, know, you stand there and it's quiet and it's somber and you're watching these guards go through this, uh, this ritual and this changing. I, don't, I know it's not a good illustration, but it's something to try to help us understand. Moses is going to the tabernacle. Israel stands up and, and watches and what happens in verse 10, And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Because Moses was in God's presence. God's ambassador to them, Moses, was meeting with God. And the whole Israelite host was taking notice. Eventually there was a temple constructed. The tabernacle was temporary. It could be packed up and moved and set up and packed up and moved. But the tabernacle was a permanent fixture, permanent structure built by King Solomon. But the great, as great as the temple was, we need to remember that the temple was not like a national monument is to us. I mean, Israelites weren't just kind of strolling around. They weren't taking summer vacations over to Jerusalem and 
you know, standing there taking selfies in front of the Ark of the Covenant with their family. That's not what it was. The temple, right, there, there were certain act areas where, where only Jews were permitted, and then there was only, only Jewish men were permitted, and then it was only priests were permitted, and then there was one room, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the actual presence of God was, was residing. Only the high priest could go in that little room only once a year, and that was after taking careful preparations to be in the presence of God. They say, so what? I mean, why have you spent all this time reviewing this? Well, all of this biblical theology shows us that access to God's presence is not casual. It's not an inalienable right. It is awesome. It is serious. In some ways, it is sensational. It is amazing. And all through the ages, God's people, the people of God have longed for access to God's presence. And God, in his mercy, has established ways to to, to meet him, and, and the greatest way that we enjoy today is through Jesus Christ. I'm not diminishing that. What I'm trying to do is help you understand that the access that Christians have today to God through Jesus stands on the shoulders of everything that we went through. And Jesus is no less significant than Mount Sinai trembling, or the tabernacle and the whole host of Israel standing and taking notice, or the temple where the high priest went in once a year. It's not less significant than that. It's, it shows you the, the significance of what Christ has done. And this is this amazing access to God's presence is awesome because of who God is. God is holy. He's one of a kind. I was recently uh, heard it described that God's holiness is you, you might kind of liken it to the sun. The sun is good, it gives life, but it's also fierce and awesome. And when you get close to the sun, you're too close, you're going to be harmed. If, if you try to look at the sun and to enjoy all of its glory, you're going to be damaged. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to be injured. And the same is true for God. There's a reason that when, when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory, that God hid Moses in a, in a cleft of a rock and said, you can't, you can't handle it. I'm going, to let, I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to show you my glory, but you're just going to see the shadows of it, as it were. Because no one can experience God in his whole godness and a person would come undone. It would overwhelm and destroy them. And we must not forget the godness of the great I am. And I think at our age of easy access and high-speed internet and microwave ovens and everything is quick and prime-day shipping and same-day shipping, that happened to me this week. I ordered something and it was delivered the same day. And we kind of look at God as just kind of another item in Amazon's click list to download and get access to. And we cheapen and, and remove the great I amness from God. And so what I'm trying to do is deliver some of this biblical theology to our hearts this morning as reminders. And if you're not a Christian, this is good for you to understand. This is, this is who we worship through Jesus. So that when we understand why David writes this, Oh Lord, who, oh Jehovah, oh great I am, who shall sojourn in your tent? I mean, who? How do you get access to him? How do you dwell and live with him? Who shall dwell on your, here it is, holy hill? Now, I want to cautious, uh, caution us, too, because we might come away from this reminder of the splendor of God, the amazing awesomeness of God, and go, ha, huh, alrighty, so see? Uh, here's, here's, this is how I appreciate that. I, you know, this is why it matters, you know, what, what we wear on Sunday. You know, we're going to wear the very, very best that we have. Now, you may just try to do that. 
But I want you to understand that clothing choices don't matter because there was a temple and the priest washed. For instance, so parents, you can't say, see, the priest had to wash before they met God. So kids, you've got to take baths today because church is tomorrow. Right? Use a silly illustration like that. No, that would not be a good application. Their cleanliness is good. And I'm thankful that you had your smelly kids take a bath yesterday. Hope, maybe. But, but that's, that would not be a right conclusion because the reason that we don't go through ritual washings like the priests did and Israel did when they would bring sacrifices is not because God doesn't care about things like that. It's that it shows us the comprehensiveness of all that Jesus has done. And so the choices that we make aren't earning favor with God in, in kind of getting us better access to him. Our choices in being careful as we come to worship the Lord together are an expression of a heart of love and adoration of him. They're not works of righteousness that we are doing in our own strength. Do you see the difference there? So now that we have this contextual background established, a fresh awareness of how awesome the concept is of being with God, we can look at what Psalm 15 teaches us about who gets access with God, who actually can dwell in God's presence. And we're going to work through this list quickly, okay? The second section, really verses 2 down through the first part of verse 5. What is required to dwell in God's presence? Um, well, first, your character must be true. Your character must be true. Uh, you see, it says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. The term blamelessly and the phrase does what is right are parallel, which is an important concept to understand as you read the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms repeat the same idea with different words. Uh, so you'll see a line and it'll be communicating the truth. You'll see another line right underneath it. It's communicating the same truth often, but just with different words. So don't get too you know, wrapped around the axle and trying to find the nuances of different meanings between every word there in the Psalms. They're parallel thoughts. Now, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right is not describing, for the Jewish reader here, sinless perfection, but it is describing faithful Jewish worship of the Lord in its day. So for an ancient Jew, uh, what that meant is that when an ancient Jew sinned, that meant he would do what the law required. He would observe the feasts. He would observe the, the sacrifices. He would come to God on God's terms, obeying God's law, God's rule, God's way, and achieve and, and receive the forgiveness that God would grant through that obedient um, through that obedience to God through faith. The phrase that says, um, speaks truth in his heart at the end of verse 2, um, that highlights that essential reality that's so prized and valued by God. When what we think and what we do are in alignment, there's not duplicitousness there, not hypocrisy. It reminds us of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, when he said, blessed are the pure in heart. What, what is it? They shall see God. What else is required to dwell in God's presence? And not just your character be true, your words must be upright. Your words must be upright. This is verse 3. Uh, they don't slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Uh, this person doesn't advance his own agenda by falsely accusing someone else's reputation. Kind of getting a, a leg up and moving forward in life by pulling others down. In other words, this, this person isn't saying favorable things about you while they're with you and then saying slanderous things against you while they're away from you. This idea of nor taking up reproach against his friend at the end of verse 3 is uh, meaning this person doesn't gossip about others, doesn't speak ill or evil against others. Which, by the way, how we interact with other people matters a lot. It's a, it's a great emphasis, really, of the entire Old Testament into the New Testament, which summarized with this, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love God with all of your being and, and love your neighbor as yourself. On this, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled. But not just character being true and words being upright, but in verse 4 we learn that our allegiance must be right. Our allegiance must be right. In verse 4 it says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Despising a vile person, if you're reading this and maybe you're not a Christian, you think, I can't believe it. See, I knew Christians are just a bunch of uptight, self-righteous, looking down the nose at other people. In fact, the Bible even tells that Christians are supposed to be people that what? That despise vile people. Now, I, I, I want to clarify this. This is not talking about pharisaical, false, hypocritical judgmentalism. What this is describing is that people who dwell with God are people who align themselves with what God thinks. They agree with God's judgments. And so vile people are despised, not because people think they're better than them, but because God hates vileness. And this makes obvious sense, right? I mean, how, are you, how do you expect to enjoy being in God's presence if you, don't enjoy what, if you don't enjoy what God enjoys? I mean, do we really think that we're going to enjoy a holy God if we kind of despise holiness? Of course not. Who shall sojourn in your tent, God? People that align themselves, that agree with your judgments about life. So giving honor to those who fear the Lord. That next phrase there, right? It, it follows after, uh, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Uh, this helps us understand what it means by despising vileness. And especially as it flows into verse 5 when it talks about not taking a bribe. So you can understand some of the context here. In an Israelite, ancient Israel, you could have somebody who is living corruptly and what they're doing is they're moving themselves forward to taking bribes or giving bribes and God hates that. And God says the people that are going to dwell with him are people that agree with him, giving honor to those who fear the Lord. It's the positive side of despising vileness. It reminds us of the importance of fearing the Lord. And in fact, it's so important. It's, Proverbs describes it as the basic of, of getting to know God. It's the, basic, it's the beginning of wisdom. So in other words, verse 4 teaches us that if you want to approach God, you must have an attitude toward good and evil that mirrors God. What else? Well, the end of verse 4 into verse 5 tells us that we must be honorable. And I don't know how to say it. Maybe your reputation must be honorable, but I understand reputations can be, you know, abused and distorted and turned. But the idea of honor is in here where, where it says that a person who dwells with God is somebody who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So this person is someone who keeps their word even when it costs them. Uh, it reminded me of a story I once heard about a farmer. Um, uh, he, he had um, finally achieved a measure of success and he was delighted to discover that his cow was going to give birth to a calf and he didn't need the calf so he knew that he would be able to um, sell the calf for profit and, and, and take those profits. And uh, he was excited about this, uh, this occasion. And then to his delight, he discovered that the cow was carrying twins. And he comes in just delighted and he walks over to his, his wife and he was feeling magnanimous and he decided that, you know, um, I'm going to, when the, when the cow gives birth uh, to these twins, I am going to give one of the calves, I'm going to, eventually I'm going to sell them, I'm going to give uh, one of the calves to the Lord. I'm going to give the money uh, to God's work. So I said, okay, it sounds great. 
Well, some time passed. Um, the, the calves were born. I, if you're not a farmer, please hang in there. This is going to make sense in a minute. And the calves are born, and uh, he's delighted. He's raising them, and he comes in one day, and he's just really sad. And, and his wife says, what's wrong? And he says, oh, it's just so terrible. Um, you know, the calves got sick, and um, uh, sadly, the Lord's calf died. Now, why is it that he assumed that it was the Lord's calf that died? Why not? We, we get the, the humor in there. But, but this is the idea that, you know, just humorously, we, we find ways to kind of cleverly get ourselves out of what we might have committed ourselves to. And yet, praise God that God is not that way. He is true to his word. We sang this morning about truth that never changes. Why? Because that's God. And a person that dwells with God is, is somebody who agrees in his behavior with God in that way. There's this idea of a godly person is someone who does not oppress the disadvantaged for personal gain. That's what's described there as money at interest. It doesn't mean that they're not um, doing business in the marketplace. It means that in ancient Israel, there was this law that was forbidding Israelites from putting, getting, using to their advantage somebody's disadvantage. Being able to charge these exorbitant interest rates against their fellow countrymen because of their disadvantaged position. And the same thing with bribery. God hates bribery because God... It's contrary to his righteous, just nature. And the justice system uh, for ancient Israel is one of the few ways that the disadvantaged in the nation had a chance to be protected and to, be, um, to, to have their causes heard. So taking bribe would pervert justice and would thwart that. So we've gone through a list, right? It's Psalm 15. I'm not making the list up. It's a list that's describing these are the people that will dwell with God. So here, as we come to a conclusion... Uh, if you're a Christian, you're probably thinking, what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, are, are we supposed to make this into kind of like a personal to-do list for this next week? Are, 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 is, are you suggesting, is Psalm 15 tell us that we earn our access to God's presence through living this way? Well, let me clarify this as we come to a conclusion. No. This is not a to-do list. And I want to clarify this this way. Psalm 15 is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. And if you're thinking, what in the world does that mean? It means this, Psalm 15 is not telling us, if you live this way, you're going to get access to God. Or it's not saying you live this way so that you can get access to God. Psalm 15 is descriptive, it's saying this, these are the people who enjoy God's presence. These are the people that enjoy dwelling with God. So that leads us then to the question of this. Well, how do you become one of those people? How do you become a, a person that is like Psalm 15? And if you're not a Christian, you should be listening very carefully now because this is really where it gets down to the central message of, the, of Christianity. Psalm 15 isn't challenging us to, hey, you try to, try to go through the obstacle course of Psalm 15. And if you can get through all the obstacles, then at the end, instead of a medal, it's going to be access to God. What Psalm 15 is, it's an impossible obstacle course. I mean, every verse you get to, all of the, it describes people, it's, you're going to constantly keep falling off the rope, or you're going to constantly keep falling off the wall, whatever obstacle you want to choose in your head, you can't make it. Psalm 15 doesn't challenge us, it defeats us, it overwhelms us. It shows us that we need somebody who can do this. We need somebody who, who, who is upright, who, who always spoke true, who is true in their allegiance, who agrees with God in every way, who's always been perfect in the expression of that, we need a Savior. And that's the central message of the Christian gospel. 
It's the core truth of Christianity. What makes someone a Christian isn't achieving behavior that matches Psalm 15. What makes someone a Christian, what gives someone access to God's presence, is faith in Jesus Christ. According to the Scriptures, the way a sinner enjoys the blessing of forgiveness is embracing what Jesus has done for themselves. That's faith, the treasuring of, of God through Jesus, agreeing, saying that what everything that God has said Jesus is and who he is, that you accept and agree and treasure and embrace that so that Jesus is now your Lord and Savior. Are you a Christian? Will you dwell in God's presence? Psalm 15 is actually all about Jesus. I mean, every time you read one of these descriptions of character, of conduct, of speech, of reputation, of, of honor, of of justice, of righteousness, every time you read that, what, it's, what Psalm 15 doing is it's, it's reminding us as New Testament Christians of Jesus. And Jesus was true in character. He was upright in his words. In fact, when he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he was falsely accused, he, not, he did, did not defend himself because he was busy about doing the Father's work of being a redeemer for sinners like us. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. But here's the key truth, yet without sin. So if by faith you are united to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you can enjoy fellowship in God's presence. That's why the next verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, let us then with what? Confidence. Here it is. Draw near. That just sounds like Psalm 15. Draw near what? To the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Psalm 15 ends with these words of confidence. He who does these things, you see the end of it? He who does these things shall never be moved. Well, the Christian gospel is not about here, do this and then you will achieve access to God or you'll achieve some experience of blessed, happy, heavenly living. Every other world religion offers you that type of experience. Obey these rules, follow these steps, walk this path, and then you will achieve this. But Christianity gives an entirely different message. It says this, believe and receive the one who has done this all. And then God in his grace and mercy will give to you everything that Jesus did that you didn't. And God in his mercy and grace will take all of your sin that you did and Jesus is the one who has taken that sin and paid the penalty for it. That's the message of Christianity. He who does these things shall never be moved. You might be thinking, but I can never do these things. But that's the glory of Christianity. God gave us somebody who did And the the Christian term, it's a big one, called justification. I know, lots of syllables. That that Christian term describes this legal reality of God. And he teaches it to us from the scriptures. We wouldn't have thought this up. That God says, here is what I have chosen to do. Here is my redemptive plan for sinners like you. I'm going to give you a Savior, Jesus. And he will live the life you never could. He will die the death that you should so that when you repent and believe, embrace Christ to be your own, I will treat you as if you were Jesus. As if what Jesus has done is what you did. So then, Christians find great confidence, not in our holy living, 
but in the one who lived holy for us. Being accepted by God through faith in Jesus is a life built on the bedrock. If I can have your minds remember our Sermon on the Mount series, at the very end when Jesus says, listen, if you receive these words of mine, your life will be built on a rock. That rock is Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides Christians the greatest security in all of life. So no matter what happens in life, because of Christ, Christians are fully assured that the best is yet to come. Read Romans 8, particularly the latter half. You're going to read how the Christians are assured of the grace of God and, I'm going to flip these terms now, the God of grace to keep them forever secure in God's love. And I'm going to read uh, a couple of uh, verses from Romans 8, beginning in verse 33. The Apostle Paul is coming to the, not the conclusion, but summarizing here the glories of Jesus Christ in Romans 8. And he says this, Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? Right, and the charges would be this, the charges that your own conscience bring against you, the charges that your own conscience has right now because of yesterday and, and, and the day before and last week. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Here's his answer. It is God who justifies. You, you, there's no higher supreme court than God. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Here it is, Christians. Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or cancer or strokes or you fill in the blanks, friend. No, verse 37, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I hope you understand that Romans 8 that I read, all those verses there, is just an an expansion of, of Psalm 15, verse 5. He who does these things, what? Shall never be moved. What do you mean, shall never be moved? Read Romans 8, 33 and following. That's it. Because of Christ. Do you have this Christian confidence? It can be yours through faith in Christ. Now, Christians, Psalm 15 has some helpful contributions for how we live today, how we live tomorrow. By God's grace, through God's power, Christians should more and more look like Psalm 15. And we understand this. And so I just want for Psalm 15 not to be a a burden around your neck, but I want, I want, as you consider Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 15 for you, to understand that Psalm 15 is a reminder, it's an invitation, it's an encouragement to enjoy presence with God. Christians are people who will live with God forever. We agree on that. So therefore, Christians should more and more be looking like God, sounding like God, behaving like God. I know in our creaturely way, but more and more. This is... While the Apostle Peter uh, tells us in 2 Peter 1 that Christians are, are partakers of the divine nature. And it's like, whoa, that sounds really cool, but we don't often stop and just meditate on the significance of that. So if the divine nature, if we are partakers of the divine nature as Christians, that means that divine nature will necessarily express itself more and more by God's power. So yes, Psalm 15 is all about Jesus. But the righteous record of Christ is not remove Christians' pursuit of holiness 
It enables it. It strengthens it. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you call yourself a Christian and you have no care or concern in your life about a life that models and lives in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ, friend, I want to kindly just challenge your assumption. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you are holy in Christ, positionally, by God, through His justifying work, then that will, that will work itself out in some way. You will be doing battle against sin in the power of God. And so, again, 1 Peter 1, But as He who called you is holy, what does Peter tell Christians there? You also be holy in all your conduct. So Psalm 15 is not, listen, you live holy, then you're going to get to see God. No. It's saying this, these are the kind of people that get to be with God. And then, well, how do you get to be that person? Trust in Jesus Christ who lived holy for you. Well, now what? Well, now live in accord with the life that you've been given by God. Trust Him. Keep repenting and keep believing. Keep following Jesus. And by the way, that's what we're doing together as a church. This is like a, 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 an assurance of salvation cooperative here. We're helping each other follow Jesus. We're reminding each other of the truths of God through Jesus Christ. And we need that. We forget the world looks so dazzling sometimes. We get so deceived by these false pleasures and, and wrong pursuits and we start to think, nah, I don't know. We're kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden. Has God really said? We need to be reminded. We serve an awesome, great I am. So then, Christian, has God used Psalm 15 to mercifully reveal sin in your life? As you read through, oh, reminded about who God is and all that you have in Christ. Suddenly, would God have mercy to turn your heart away from that sin, to repent? Psalm 15 invites Christians to remember Jesus. Psalm 15 is asking us to remember the peace and the joy and the pleasure of fellowship in God's presence that is ours through Christ and reminds us that a holy life is a confident life because it is anchored in Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian, I hope you realize how futile it is for you to try to achieve holy living on your own. You, you might fool all of us, but God sees your heart. Friend, Psalm 15 is offering to you Jesus. He's the one who walked blamelessly. He is the one who never spoke ill. He is the one who always honors the fear of the Lord. And he is the one that did all of this and gave himself for you. Psalm 15 is an invitation to know Christ, either through repentant faith or through joyous fellowship. Let's pray.